Hello, welcome to the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at some of the work of uh, Robert A. Heinlein uh, in chronological order, um, looking at every story, every novel that I can get my hands on. Um, and we are currently going to look at Red Planet. Um, I think for most of the novels that he wrote, we'll spend two episodes on, some will do three. Maybe some will even do four. But uh, for the juveniles, we'll, we'll stick to two episodes per novel. I think that gives us enough time to explore the themes and ideas in them. Um, and so Red Planet, uh, the next novel we're going to look at here, was written in or published in 1949. It's his third juvenile and uh, it's it's kind of the best so far. I, I think uh, what I like about Red Planet and I think one thing that's kind of striking about Red Planet is it's his of the it's his most overtly anti-authoritarian book since, since some of the astounding stuff, I think. Um, the Green Hills of Earth cycle, that's how I'm seeing it, thinking of it in my head. All those stories he wrote after World War II dealing with humanity's place in space and the conflict and the contrast between people on Earth and the people who got into space are really interesting in terms of like that question of like the frontier and who who's built for the frontier. That's great stuff, but none of it really deals with this theme that that you know is seems to be at the heart of Heinlein's work, which is his his anti-authoritarian ideas. We got a lot of this in the astounding work uh, before the war. Uh, if we just take the list of future history short fiction that he wrote, uh, we have The Roads Must Roll, anti-authoritarian. Uh, we have If This Goes On, anti-authoritarian. We have Coventry, another anti-authoritarian book. Uh, the Universe, anti-authoritarian in a way. Uh, Logic Vampire is. Uh, we have, those are future history ones. As far as novels go, Beyond This Horizon, certainly a lot of anti-authoritarian themes there. In fact, the gun control issue is, is something that comes up here again in Red Planet. So, it was a lot of stuff before the war. And of course, it's something we often associate with Heinlein in his politics is libertarian politics, which is why I think he's, you know, he's attractive to various groups because he, he is able to talk about freedom and liberty in kind of broad terms. And, and his politics are so individual. They really are. It's like a whole separate politics, Heinlein's politics. Right? I don't think he fits very comfortably in, in any political space. I mean, maybe more comfortably at some points in his career than, you know, but overall, he's, it's, it's very kind of conflicted. But maybe at certain times you can say, well, he's more on the right, he's he, this a little bit more leftist, or even certain ideas you might categorize. But as totality, he's just interesting, and, and he's mixing up a lot of, like, American ideologies into something. And that, that may make him a little dangerous, a little incoherent at times. But this one, uh, I, I think it's straight up like anti-authoritarian, and, and I think it does it quite well. Uh, the villains are a little contrived, I think. They're a little just, uh, we literally have a scene where they're like plotting behind closed doors 
twirling their mustaches, plotting their evil act, and it gets leaked because of a, uh, you know, because of Willis, the little uh, the bouncer, the little Martian indigenous creature that can basically record parrot sounds and record sounds through. It's like a biological recorder. You know, it's able to like know exactly what the bad guys are planning and which allows our heroes to then kind of venture out and try to save the day. The, the villains aren't the most well-constructed here, but our heroes are pretty well-constructed. And Willis is one of the most, is probably the most memorable character we've seen in any of these juveniles. Um, Tex maybe is kind of, you know, he's kind of memorable, I suppose. I, I like Tex from, from Space Cadet, but who can remember anyone in Rocket Ship Galileo? I mean, if, if you remember any of those characters by name, I, I'm kind of surprised. It, I've read that book twice, and I, 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 I know there's Nazis on the moon. I know some guy's uncle or someone shows up and helps. But the boys, I can't separate them <laughs> at all. In Space Cadet, though, you do have, uh, you know, pretty memorable characters. Dotson, Tex, these kinds of people you don't forget. Um, then Red Planet, though. Wow, it's like, especially Willis. Willis is just such a great character because he's an alien and and he's someone that you fall in love with as the characters fall in love with. You care about him and you, when you learn what he is, it's, 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 it's wonderful and you see him grow up and mature and get his own kind of independence. That's, that's kind of great. Uh, you know, the, the reveal that he's, just a Martian in, in a kind of an earlier state is, is a great reveal. So wonderful stuff here. Uh, even Gecko, the other Martians we meet, uh, they're a fully developed culture. Um, now, we've seen that before in Heinlein, especially, I think, in Methuselah's children. But it's actually surprising this late in his career. I know he's got 20 more years or so of, of writing, but it's, you know, he's not going to write quite as fast and furiously as he did before the war. We've had a lot of Heinlein stuff before the war, right? We spent a lot of time on those astounding stories. And it, but there's not that many, like, alien cultures. It's, it's usually just humans on other planets, you know. And sometimes there's indigenous populations here and there, but they're not the really focus of the story. Um, an exception would be Methuselah's children, where we sort of get a tour of, of space, where they go to different planets, interact with different local people, decide they don't want to live there, and then eventually go back to Earth. Um, this one, though, is the best, I think it's the best snapshot of an of a alien culture that we get from Heinlein um, up to this point. And of course, it's going to influence Stranger in a Strange Land, one of his most famous novels and influential novels. Super influential in the like the sexual revolution, and, th and that's 15 years out from this book's publication. But uh, that is going to rely on a very distinctive, defined Martian culture, and and this is the start of it, I think. So uh, with that, let's let's go into the first half of the book um, a little bit. The first chapter is just called Willis. Um, and we jump right into the contrast between Martian and human life, uh, Willis being the first example of Martian life we get, um, and the big difference between them. And their differences is in like how they deal with the seasons. That's a, that's a big plot device, plot point in the story, is the extreme weather, the extreme 
hot and cold of the seasons, which requires the population of humans on Mars to migrate every every winter to a different part of the planet. They basically become migratory birds almost because of their inability to adjust to the climate. And that's something humans are so proud of, right? It's like on Earth, humans have been able to conquer every ecosystem to some degree. There's humans in deserts, humans in the Arctic, humans living in jungles, humans living in temperate climates everywhere. Humans have, you know, thrived and be able to adapt the environment to their needs and adapt themselves to the environment. Okay. Their cultures, their architecture, all of that to fit their, where they live, which is why humans have successfully lived almost everywhere with a few exceptions, not this ocean, I guess, and not maybe like Antarctica, but everywhere else. And on the on Mars, though, humans are much more constrained in where they can live and at what time because of the extreme temperatures. But on the other hand, the Martians don't have those same restrictions. And uh, we get some wonderful windows into like Martian plant life and animal life and things like that, too. And sometimes there's threats, but like the cabbage scene, it's about halfway through the novel where they have to hide in a, in a hibernating cabbage, and these cabbages that hibernate for the winter. Wonderful, wonderful details about this. Um, anyways, basically the plot we start with in the first chapter is, um, is our main character, who's Jim, and he's got this uh, friend Frank. They're going to go off to boarding school in another town because they're, they're Martian settlers. They live on, on, on Mars. That's where their life is. They're... They're already the humans in space. So all that Green Hills on Earth stuff, that we're past that. We're on a, we got a population living on the moon or living on, on Mars. And in a sense, we're beyond where Space Cadet and Rocket Ship Galileo are too because those were people on Earth who venture into space, right? Here we just have people in space and they're right in the setting, which is important because we can't, we don't want to spend half this novel getting to, to Mars. That's, no, then, then we're going to miss out all the really good stuff here. The really good stuff here is about Mars itself and the humans living on Mars and the struggles they go through. So instead, it's instead of going off to space or joining, building a rocket ship or, or joining the space patrol, it's we got to just go to school uh, because we have to. And we learn quite a bit about the relationship between um, Mars and Earth. The biggest issue is basically they're run by corporations. This is something that's going to be explored in a lot more detail by in, in Red Mars um, and the, the Mars series by Kim Stanley Robinson about like how Earth could, would manage Mars and pay for it and, and the important role of corporations in that relationship. Obviously, that's, that's something like 30 years after this book. But this idea of the colonies being controlled by an authoritarian corporate institution is is laid out here. And I think it's going to be reused. Philip Dick does does the similar things, I guess. He, he's so weird, though. He's got a, a different approach to it. But certainly we see it in, in Robinson, this conflict between the settlers versus the, the authority on the planet. And really, the only tension early in the novel is, can Willis go to school? And and it's not that big of a big of a deal. Um, initially, it's just the idea is like, well, yeah, of course he can go. And it's like, do the parents let him take Willis? This bounce, this ball, bouncer. It's just a like a ball creature that can talk and can parrot humans. He's basically Jim's pet, 
but he's not also not a pet because he's it's he's like sentient and and jim will actually say he, he's he's something more than a pet he's actually it's his own person and if he wants to come with me that's his right as as a martian entity right with his own freedoms it's a very libertarian culture we learn that the martian culture not just among humans but especially among the martians themselves is very much based on libertarianism and kind of a bottom-up cooperation and 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 mutual aid it's a it's a mutual aid it's kind of an anarchist mutual aid society we get um, now there's a lot of rituals and cultural things holding that together and sustaining that humans on the other hand controlled by this authoritarian corporation but a lot of anarchic sentiment as well right for instance everyone has guns so um, beyond this horizon Heinlein's earlier novel published in book form around this time that this comes out was had a lot about gun control that's where the the idea like a well-armed society is a polite society right and i made the case when i talked about beyond this horizon that i think that's actually that book shows a a well-regulated gun culture right it's it's not uh it's not like america today like that gun culture described in that book is well regulated by certain cultural standards and behaviors right a certain degree of uh, of warrior culture almost a warrior culture is doing the, the moderation here that's not as detailed here instead we got a much more kind of just kind of american idea of like you can't the government can't take our guns from us because we need to f protect ourselves from auth the authoritarian state or whatever um a free citizen should have to go before a committee hat in hand and pay for permission to bear arms fantastic arm your daughter sir and pay no attention to petty bureaucrats one character says when asked about gun control both men and women uh even older boys and older girls are armed on on mars um so yeah a, a gun culture here on on mars interesting aspect of it it's gonna be a plot point uh, as we move forward we also learn that terraforming of mars is something that's being worked on largely the contrivance here is that there's a big source of oxygen kind of hidden below the surface of Mars that can be released someday. It's not the long, long painstaking process we get in, in red, red Mars. Of course, it's less complicated there too because there's no indigenous uh, population. There is one here. Um, so the first two chapters are just sort of setting up uh, the setting a little bit and, and our characters. Um, then in chapter three, Gecko, we... Uh, we, our characters go off to the boarding school. Um, and on the way there, uh, they lose track of Willis. They go look for him, and eventually they get approached by Gecko. Gecko is a Martian, and they're one of the few humans that have had this kind of close, intimate relationship with, with a Martian. And the Martian, Gecko, eventually takes them to meet the, his people, and he is given the water ritual. This is uh, something that is almost never done for humans, if, if at all. And this is why I suggested before that, although the Martian culture seems to be very much based on freedom, there's also a lot of emphasis on ritual and propriety and behavior and, and reciprocity. So the ritual is, is based on like the sharing of water. 
And literally, the language of the ritual implies a, a gift culture, a gift economy, right? where they say, may you drink deep whenever you wish, which, of course, is a concept in a gift economy is that you take what you need or what you want and you provide what you can when you want to. And then that's, that's the basis of a gift economy. Um, and that's implied in this fundamental ritual of friendship that is established here. So they have this. There's this very unique experience for these, these, these young boys, um, Jim and Frank. But then they move on. They move on with their life, and they go to Lowell Academy. And that's Chapter 4, Lowell Academy. And we start with a letter written by Jim to his parents. And he's already complaining about the conditions of the Lowell Academy and the you know, just the nature of, the, the more authoritarian nature of, of life on the, in the school um, and the limitations. And that's the heart of this chapter. This chapter is really just about the loss of freedoms that entail going to school. Now, that's something that, of course, all students experience to some degree. School does entail a loss of freedom. That's how they function. That's, in some sense, their purpose is to, is to train the freedom out of young people. Right, but also just to even if in their most benevolent reading of what school's about, some degree of loss of freedom is required because you you need to have some control in order to do the basic realities of education. But th this is a culture shock for them. They are experiencing a, a level of surveillance and, and and control and punishment, discipline and punishment that they haven't experienced before, and they question it at every stage. For instance, there's uh, the chapter is broken up by these like special notices uh, that are issued by the the headmaster. Things like students are required to keep themselves and their quarters neat and orderly at all times. The supervision of these matters by student monitors is not proved satisfactory. Therefore, formal inspections by the headmaster will be held each week. The first such inspection will be at 1000 Saturday, the seventh of Saris. Signed, M. Howe. How is the headmaster of the school? And there's immediate resistance to this. And when they issue out punishments to, I think it's Jim, right? They issue out punishments to him for the bad situation in his dorm, which he tries to defend himself saying this is two people in a dorm meant for one. And it's hard to keep clean. He is, he's punished. And he, he openly says this is unfair what's being done. So we get all sorts of regulations about food, pets not being in the dormitory, and that's going to be an important point, um, pets not being allowed. Now, there's going to be a couple points of confrontation between Howe and Jim. Uh, first will be on, like, cleaning the room and, and, and the punishments for it, which is, like, he losing weekend privileges to do all sorts of things. Like, you can only read and sit in your dorm for all weekend if, if, if you break some of these rules. Kind of, kind of unfair in their view, um, and I would agree with them. Um, but the the big points of controversy come with the the securing of their guns. So he doesn't, Jim doesn't want to accept that he can't carry his gun around because that's his right as as a Martian citizen, as a civilian, and you can't take that away. And House says, well, we're in a school and we can do what we want. Um, so that's the first point of conflict. And the next comes when the, when the headmaster discovers Willis. And they said, well, you can't have Willis. He's a, he's, a, he's a pet. You're not allowed to have pets. And Jim's response is, well, Willis is not a pet. He's just Willis. He's actually a sentient being, which we find out is true. 
by the end of the novel. Uh, but he's he's seen as just like an indigenous pet almost, um, and how seizes him. Now, eventually, the boys free him from the headmaster's court. That's in chapter five, I think. He's eventually freed, but not before they they're able to overhear because. Willis is essentially like a tape recorder. So he has this important plot role in which he can record what he hears. So he basically can repeat what he heard between uh, Howe and Beecher. Now, Beecher is like the administ- like the boss of Mars. Like he's basically like the corporate overlord of, of the Martian authority that's running the, the colony. And both are very uh, duplicitous. Both are very materialistic, both just want wealth for themselves. And the plans they overhear is first that they want to sell Willis to basically to a zoo for quite a lot of money um, back on Earth. Um, I think it's like a zoo in Europe or something wants, wants Willis to be on display. So he's going to lose his freedom. He's going to become a slave of, of, of humans. And of course, Jim does not want to allow that. And the second thing is that, that Willis is able to report to the boys is that in order to save the money of the migration, they're going to stop the migration. They're just going to keep delaying it month to month until winter's over. Now, remember, winter on, on Mars is like a year, right? It's a year on Earth. Like a, a, it's like two years, two Earth years for a year on Mars. So winter is like 12 months, and it's really cold, and it's expensive to move to the warmer climates, but it's almost a necessity, right? Now, I don't quite un- fully understand this plan. I understand trying to save money, but aren't people just going to die? I mean, it's already been established, like, the winter on Mars, you can't really survive. So what's their plan? They're just going to kill the colonists? Or is it a plan to sell them, like, coal? <laughs> they heat their homes? Um, maybe. I, it doesn't make much sense to me as a plan. That's, that's, I do think these villains are kind of broadly drawn. How is just the normal evil headmaster, which we've seen in fiction all over the place. Beecher is just the, the evil president who, you know, it, it, we've seen these kinds of characters before. Um, but that's probably true of most characters in fiction, to be fair. And certainly Heinlein's not the most, orig- not most, most well known for his characterization. But that's what we get. And then... What they realize, or what Jim realizes and Frank realizes, is that they don't, if they don't warn their parents, and that's another thing, the rules have basically shut down communication between the, the school and the, the other colonists, their families. So they realize that if we don't get a message to them, they're going to be basically stuck in the, in the Martian winter. And essentially to save their life, we have to warn them. So they venture out, and their plan is basically to ice skate uh, across the canals all the way to their homes. It's kind of a, almost a preposterous plan, but they do some, we do get some planning into it. We do see them prepare supplies, and they do seem to have uh, some thought into it, but they, they run into troubles not long after. So it wasn't the best plan after all, but uh, that's essentially the idea is to ice skate along the, along the, the canals. And they, they, they've already rescued Willis, so he's along for the ride, too. And they go on various adventures. They meet native 
animals along the way that they have to fight. The most dramatic moment is when they're freezing to death and they have to crawl into one of these hibernating cabbages, which uh, it provides like safety from the environment and to shelter for for the night, but it also you know, has a limited oxygen supply, so there's a, a danger that they might get stuck there too and die, and, and Jim's really afraid of that. But they get out, they, they wake up the next day and are able to escape from that and move on with their adventure. Um, eventually, though, they run into the Martians, including Gecko, and that's about halfway through the book. So, um, as we've seen with like all these Heinlein novels, the juveniles, it takes about half of the book to get going um and you kind of do wish you had slightly more memorable characters um because you spend so much time with them before you get to like the actual plot of the story a lot of it's world building um but in this case like you could complain about that in space cadet space cadet and especially rocket ship galileo but in this one it's all good i mean the the world building here the setting is wonderfully done and, and Jim's the much more likable character. Willis is just amazing. He, he's really wonderful to be with. I have my problems with the villains, the way they're drawn, and what the actually is their plan is. It's kind of weird and ill-defined. But the, the setting of Mars here and the indigenous people's cultures and the way they worked in the indigenous people's culture earlier in the book for a payoff later on, really, really well done. I, I think... This so far is the best of the juveniles, I think. I don't know if it's the best overall, but I certainly am enjoying this one. Um, I'll finish up my thoughts about Red Planet in the next episode, though. Um, I don't think there's too much to say about the first half of it. Um, I do think this is strongly, strongly anti-authoritarian, though, um, with the focus on a gun culture, with the focus on the struggle. Like, Jim is is essentially a colonial anarchist by culture, by birth, um, because that's just who he is. And going into the school, he's, he's brought into an authoritarian institution, and he has to struggle against it from day one. And eventually he has to go to rebellion to save his family. Um, he's forced to choose between the institution, which, of course, he has no loyalty to anyways, but he, he's forced to risk his life to save his family, and in doing so goes to war with the entire system around him. Uh, a good anarchist hero here. Um, but what I think what an added dimension to this is that the, the Martians share that value right, of, of freedom. Um, now, how that all plays out and works out is something we're going to have to talk about in the next episode. But pretty much everything we need is laid out by this point in the story. So um, I'm looking forward to talking about the conclusion of Red Planet in the next episode. But in the meantime, let me know what you think of this book if you've read it. Uh, you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. So anyways, uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.